We're going to read uh, from Acts chapter 20, verse 28 only uh, this morning as I continue, and we do part two of a message entitled Biblical Church Government Governance, the Call, Qualifications, Roles, and Responsibilities of the Office of Pastor. And I don't think the slides are coming up this morning. There they go. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Luke writes in chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Fathers, we continue in this examination of Your Word, what it has to say about the office of pastor. We pray that You would help me to present that with clarity and help us to understand it, Lord God. We want to be in compliance with Your Word. We want to understand Your Word. We want to apply it to our lives and to the life of our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So again, two Sundays ago, I preached part one of this message. And before we start on verse 2, I'm going to spend uh, more than time than normal recapping, reviewing what we talked about because it has been a couple of weeks. Before we begin that, I want to acknowledge the contributions. Did a lot of research, a lot of reading on this. Uh, Benjamin Merkel, David Platt, Alexander Strzok, Mark Dever, Larry Nelson, and there, were, and, there, and there were others as well. There's so much written on this topic. First of all, let me remind you of the biblical truth that I shared with you. This meant really to undergird it's kind of a foundation uh, for everything that we're doing as we journey through God's Word on this topic of church governance, and it's, and it's this. And they're not advancing today, are they? There we go. There it is. Adhering to a biblical model for church leadership is vital for the church to reflect the glory of Christ. Adhering to a biblical model for church leadership is vital for the church to reflect the glory of Christ. And then you might remember that I, that I gave you six principles that I suggested are fundamental and ought to come at the very forefront of any kind of discussion about church government. We spent quite a, ten, a bit of time supporting those with, with multiple Scripture verses for, for each one. And uh, as you might remember, so I'm going to kind of limit myself in this review to, to maybe a single verse of Scripture to support them. First thing we noted, and you know this well, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Say Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Paul writes, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And then secondly, we said that all members of Christ's body are priests and ministers. We use 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I reminded you that, that every Christian is a minister. That word minister does not define the office of pastor. It describes what I do. In fact, it describes what you do. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that the pastors and teachers exist to equip the saints. That's you. You're the saints. Say, that's us. That's us. Equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry. And then the local, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. Under Christ, under His Spirit, and under His Word, the congregation, and not the pastors, and not the deacons, is the final authority for the church. It's not only implied in that verse we read earlier from Peter about the priesthood of the believer, but I think it's very well illustrated in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, 
where we see the, the church is the last court of appeal when it comes to church discipline. You remember those verses. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the next, God calls some members of each congregation to feed and lead the church as servants of Christ and His people. In other words, even though there's equality before God, we're all His children, we're all heirs, we're all priests and ministers. He calls some, but not all, to be leaders, to serve Him as leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give account. So the congregation, under Christ and by His Word and the Spirit, uses its authority to affirm leaders, men who have been called by God to that capacity. And then the congregation puts those people in positions of leadership and voluntarily submits, voluntarily submits and supports those men by sitting under their teaching, learning from their teaching, and allowing them to lead. And we talked about the potential, and maybe if you're hearing this for the first time, that this could sound a little bit contradictory, to have this authoritative church body on the one hand submitting to leaders that it puts into place. But I suggested to you that it was not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction because there's a great difference between leadership that motivates and models and mobilizes and proclaims and persuades and points the way in ministry and mission and the corporate authority of the congregation that places doctrinal and moral parameters around that leadership and holds those leaders accountable for the good of the whole church. Congregational authority and strong leadership under that authority are not incompatible. They are, in fact, biblical. They are vital. And then there's a, the clear teaching that the early church was led by men referred to as elders slash pastors, and that's plural, okay? Not merely, not merely one alternative form of leadership uh, among several others. It was universal as far as we know, and there was always more than one elder in the church as far as we know. We looked at numerous texts in the New Testament that supported uh, that and the different locales across the Mediterranean world. Texts like Titus 1.5, This is why I, this Paul, left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it's hard to escape the conclusion that God's will for the local church is that it would have a group of elders or pastors, a multiplicity of those men who would serve as its primary leaders. And then the function of the elders was to feed, is to feed and lead. Or to say it another way, elders are responsible for teaching and governing the congregation. As leaders, they give guidance, they give direction, they provide soul care to the church. As, as teachers, they oversee the life of the church to protect its biblical faithfulness. They are, in that sense, guardians of the Word of God. And, and we're going to go deeper into that in just a few moments. Titus 1.9 says that elders must 
hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he might be, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to refute those who contradict it. They're the trustees, elders are, in the, the life of truth in the church. And they are governing overseers. First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders rule well, or govern, or oversee, or manage well. Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then on a personal note, I, I shared with you that I have begun to see, rather than a single man leading a local church in the capacity of quote-unquote senior uh, pastor, that traditional role, I've begun to see the need for a, a dedicated group, a multiplicity of pastors who individually and collectively are committed to the Word, committed to the church, and to the mission for which Christ has entrusted the church. A group of, of men who are accountable to God, to the church family, and to one another. Men strengthened by their varied, varied giftedness. Men bound together by their passion for Christ. Men motivated by their love for the church. Men seeking to glorify God in all things. And are committed to leading the church in glorifying God in all things. I shared with you that I had come to this, arrived at this place through a careful examination of God's Word on the subject, through decades of pastoral experience in big and small churches where I had made many mistakes in the past. And then, uh, and then really, on, coupled with that, a newfound passion to see Christ's church led well in these perilous times and aligned with Scripture, in accordance with Scripture. All that combined to lead me to this place. And I suggested to you, church family, that this is important to our church, that we, we stand at a critical juncture in our culture. It's a chaotic time. Our mission as a church cannot thrive without solid biblical leadership. There need to be individuals who defend and define and direct the mission, ensuring that we stay on course, undistracted from our purpose. The mission of expanding the kingdom of God by making disciples and glorifying our Father by the way we live our lives as we reach the lost. I suggested to you that biblical leadership is the key to that endeavor. And if we're to be a dedicated force armed with the Word of God, impacting lives from Richland to the ends of the earth, engaging in meaningful, eternal, kingdom-growing ministry for the glory of Christ, then biblical leadership is an absolute necessity. Now let's recap the responsibilities. We looked at two of them last time. First, elders lead the church under the authority of Christ. It's not a popularity contest, we said. It's not a talent show. The Holy Spirit of God calls men. The church recognizes that calling and affirms God's appointment of those men to lead the church as pastors. So it's a work, then, ultimately, of the Holy Spirit. Pastors, in one sense, belong to the church. And we know the church belongs to Christ. And so then pastors are appointed by the Spirit of God, and we are accountable to the Son of God. And, and the goal isn't, isn't just to lead a church to become an efficient organization. That's important. But pastors should lead church members, above all, toward maturity in Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, our, our home text again today. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
That's a shepherd sheep imagery in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. And the second, we said that elders care for the body. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your flock, but being examples to the flock. And there's a whole other tangent we could go off on there that examples to the, to the flock. We don't have time for that today, but trust me, that is one of the functions of the office of elder. Elders are responsible for leading the church under Christ's authority and for caring for the church, providing pastoral care for the church. Pastors are, are meant to nurture the flock that's been entrusted to them as they serve in that office, as they lead the church, they have the responsibility to protect the flock, to guard the flock, to care for the flock, and to feed the flock that is the church. And they protect and, and guard and care and feed the flock under the authority of Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the chief shepherd of the church. And they protect and care and guard and feed the flock under the authority of Christ, excuse me, Understanding that the church, as guided by the Spirit and His Word, has final authority in the church. The elders lead the people as, as a shepherd leads the flock. It's a significant analogy, obviously purposeful. Church leaders are not cowboys who, who drive the sheep like there's so much cattle. They're caring shepherds who lead and protect the sheep. And, and, and beyond that... The shepherd's primary task is not to run an organization, but to care for people's souls. A pastor's not primarily a motivator. A pastor's not primarily an administrator. A pastor's not primarily a, a program facilitator. A pastor's primarily a shepherd. So that brings us up to speed. Long wave introduction there, but I thought we needed that after a couple of weeks. And this morning I want to share with you two additional responsibilities of the office of pastor in the local church. And then I want to close out our time by looking at four benefits of a multiplicity of pastors. So the next responsibility, and this is closely tied to something we've already talked about. We're going to go deeper now, though, is elders are responsible for teaching the flock. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It is clear from the New Testament that the elder is primarily a teacher. The pastors, the elders call to lead the church. The teaching is what distinguishes them from deacons. And that's not to say that a deacon cannot be a gifted teacher. We have some men that serve in that office that are, in fact, gifted teachers. It's not to say that anybody in our church that doesn't hold an office cannot be a gifted teacher. I thank God that we do have many gifted teachers that are neither pastor nor elder. It is, however, a unique requirement, a biblical requirement of the pastor slash elder that he be able to teach. And then a few chapters later, Paul mentions that those who rule well are worthy of double honor. That is, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And Titus Paul describes that role in detail. He explains that the elder, we looked at this verse before, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, 
that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul's indicating here that the goal of teaching is not only to encourage believers by giving biblical instruction that's important, but also to firmly rebuke those who stand in opposition to the Word of God. The responsibility, the teaching role is is inseparably connected to the function of the pastor when Paul states that God has gifted the church with pastors and teachers, and really, in the Greek, that's pastor. You could say pastor slash teacher. There are other texts that associate the role of church leaders with teaching. Paul reminds the church in Galatia that one who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, two things should be observed in this verse, and that is, one is that it was the Word that's being taught. The emphasis on the Word of God was evident in the early church from the very beginning, right? We read that the first believers in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Second, some were so dedicated to the task of teaching that they required financial support. We read this verse a few minutes ago. Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Back up in verse 12, Paul told the church that those leaders are to be respected. Those leaders being those who labor are over and admonish the Thessalonian Christians in that church. And then a fourth role of the elder is as an equipper. The role of the elder as a teacher is, is, is vital not just for the health of the church in the present, but also for the growth of the church in the future. And as a result, it's not enough for pastors to simply supply the teaching. I suggest to you that they must also be purposefully about purposefully equipping the next generation of pastors to come alongside them or to plant new churches beyond the walls of this church in the community. And too often what we've seen is pastors preach year in and year out, but when all is said and done, great, good, godly men who preach the Word of God, but when all is said and done, they have effectively equipped no one to take their place. So when they leave, what do we have? An empty pulpit. I'd further suggest to you that it's a sign of an unhealthy church. If there's no one in the congregation, you could step into the gap and fill the pulpit whenever the pastor's gone. Biblical eldership includes training others to do the task of preaching and teaching. Men are called, obviously. Again, Paul's words to Timothy are are instructive here. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able, also be able to teach others. So as Paul's faithful co-worker, Timothy was entrusted with passing on the pure gospel as preached to him by Paul. He was was equipped by Paul. Paul trained him and equipped him, and now he was to become an equipper. He was to entrust what he had learned to other faithful men, which which is clearly, I think, a way of describing the elders of the church. Elders are to be equippers who will be able to teach others also, So the task of raising up new leaders for the church, men who will stand in this pulpit and deliver the Word, is, does not belong primarily to biblical colleges and seminaries. It's the task of the current pastors and elders to identify those young and maybe not so young men 
who will be faithful to carry on the gospel message through the proclamation of the Word of God. Unfortunately, what has occurred in too many churches, in too many pulpits, is that pastors have either been too busy, and I say this in all humility, or too insecure to mentor and disciple other gifted men in the church. And that has led to this equipping role, not even being thought much of, being neglected, perhaps the most of all, and one that I don't think can be overemphasized in the local church. So while elders wear many hats, these four roles encompass their primary duties, leading, caring, teaching, and equipping. So now having laid the foundations for the office of elder through Scripture, we did that mostly last week, again reviewed today, and for the multiplicity of elders, and we examine those four primary roles of the church. Now I want to share with you, close out this time, by looking at the benefits, at the advantages of a multiplicity of elders slash pastors. Let me just say this to start with. If it's true that having a plurality of elders is God's design for the church, and if we believe that, does it not follow that there are many benefits to be gained by following God's wisdom as revealed in His Word. Now listen, I'm not saying that having a plurality of pastors leading the church does not guarantee the leadership will never encounter problems or conflict. Half the New Testament is written addressing conflict in the church that had elders. But it does provide safeguards against problems and difficulties that a single pastor church often faces. There are more, but there are at least four advantages to having a plurality of elders in each local congregation. And one advantage is biblical accountability. Biblical accountability is needed for two reasons. First, it helps protect a pastor from error. You know this. You've been, you've been around this before. We don't, we don't have this situation now, but you've been around churches where the pastor possessed a lot of authority, a ton of authority. I would suggest to you too much authority with very little accountability. And that kind of authority can cause a pastor to come to believe that he's special. If you don't put him up on a pedestal, he'll put himself up on a pedestal, begin to think that he's more important than his sheep, and he'll become prideful. Other pastors, when they're given that much authority with little or no accountability, become insensitive. They become unscriptural. And they're blinded by those faults. And it's true that every single one of us have deficiencies. We all sin. We all have faults. We all have defects that can affect our judgment. And if a pastor has little or no accountability, these tendencies can go unchecked. When a church only has one pastor or a senior pastor with, with this unmatched power that I'm talking about, with little or no accountability, except for the congregation to perhaps fire him along with the deacons, which is all too far common, we've got a problem. Now, some of you are thinking about, what about the pastor accountability team at RBC? I thought that's what they did. And listen, I have really enjoyed meeting. These are good and godly men. They love the Lord. They love this church. But as good and godly as these men are, they are not called of God to serve this church as pastors. 
And that matters for all the reasons that I've detailed up to this point. A plural pastor model helps to provide the needed accountability that's lacking in too many churches today so that one man does not come to dominate the church. Phil Newton writes, Plural eldership serves to prevent one man from falling prey to the temptation of dominating a congregation. Paul spoke against that, right? Alexander Strock writes, Only when there is a genuine accountability between equals and leadership is there any hope of breaking down the terrible abuse of pastoral authority that plagues many churches. Again, our PAT is a tremendous asset to me. Hear me that clearly there, church family. It's a tremendous asset to you. What they do for you, what they do for me, is, is a blessing. And these men, wanna, they want to serve the church. They, they love the Lord, as I said before. But the biblical model of church leadership calls for those who are equal in calling and roles and responsibility and authorities, who, who can face up to a fellow elder and confront him if he's being unreasonable or if he's living in sin, just like Peter confronted Paul when Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles. A pastor needs the constant reminder that he's not above the law, but rather he's subject to those other pastors. Every pastor is capable of sin and surely needs to constantly monitor his spiritual walk. Paul warns the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Later he exhorts Timothy, keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. But a pastor not only needs to keep watch over his own life, he also needs the help of other pastors. Second, biblical accountability is needed to help foster maturity and godliness among the elders. As the elders serve together, as they lead together, as they meet weekly or some meet bi-weekly and come together for prayer and to plan and, and to discuss a leadership situation going forward, they will often be challenged and encouraged by the godly examples they see in their fellow pastors. They will stir up one another to good works, to love and to good works. The more mature elders can help train the younger elders to how to be more effective shepherds. The, what does the proverb say? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And in balance... A plurality of elders also provides the church with balance. But with no one person, and you've had some wonderful pastors, and you've known some wonderful pastors, but no one person has all the gifts or the time that a local congregation needs. As a result, most pastors are not capable of adequately fulfilling all the responsibilities that they've been given. They may be tremendously gifted in one area, but lacking in one or more other areas. Some pastors are very gifted at preaching or teaching. Others are gifted at administration or counseling or discipling. And when you have a team of pastors, the deficiencies of one man can be balanced out by the other pastors who complement his weaknesses. So it provides a variety of gifts, a variety of perspectives that are often absent when one man tries to do it by himself a plurality of elders also allows each elder to focus on his specific calling and gifting instead of spending all that time and all that effort and energy on areas of ministry that he's not particularly gifted in 
When the elders function as a team, when they function as a unit, they complement each other, and that allows each individual elder to devote most of his time to the area of ministry for which he's most gifted. A third benefit of having a plurality of elders is that the burden of ministry is shared by others. Caring for the church, I'm just going to just straight up say it, is often too much for one man to handle. And it can lead to frustration and burnout. Speaking from experience, Strzok comments, if the long hours, weighty responsibilities, and problems of shepherding a congregation of people are not enough to overwhelm a person, then dealing with people's sins and listening to seemingly endless complaints and bitter conflicts can crush a person. Is it any wonder, beloved, that so many pastorates are so short-lived? A Duke University study recently found that 85%, 85% of seminary graduates leave the ministry within five years. 90% of the men, 90% of all pastors, will not stay in the vocation until retirement. Nine out of ten. Many pastors, are, are, they're living and they're ministering under this incredible weight, this incredible burden of shepherding God's people alone. There's often no one to come beside the pastor and encourage him when he's weary from doing good, when he's beat down by his own ineffectiveness, his own sin. Solomon writes in his wisdom, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's difficult for our congregation to become mature and equipped for the work of the ministry through the work of a single pastor. If a man attempts to do all the work by himself, he is inevitably... Even if he can do a fairly decent job with that, he is going to neglect his own spiritual life or, tragically, his own family. Also, a church is better able to handle cases of church discipline when there's a plurality of pastors or elders. I've been there. A lone pastor will tend to shy away from confrontation or at least try to sweep it under the rug. Okay? It's usually too much responsibility for a single pastor to carefully handle a difficult situation. But when the wisdom that come, with the wisdom that comes from a group of godly men, the situation will almost certainly be dealt with a, with a manner that is more Christ-like, more God-honoring. During those very difficult times of conflict and church discipline, Elders can encourage one another to do what is right in this case, even if it's difficult, even if it's painful, instead of merely settling for that which is expedient, which a single pastor will often opt to do. The criticisms that might be leveled against one pastor, I suggest to you those criticisms, fairly or unfairly, will not fall 
on a group of elders like they will on one man. A final advantage of having a plurality of elders is that it better represents the nature and ministry of the church. When the church is led by a single pastor, that conveys the idea that only a select few can serve God in that kind of capacity. And so the gulf between clergy and laity becomes widening and seemingly uncrossable. But when you have a plurality of elders that demonstrates that doing the work of ministry is not only designated for a select few. When, when regular members in the church, some of you sitting here today listening to me, show themselves to be qualified, feel the calling of God, have the giftedness that's required of elders recognized in them, it opens up a massive door of opportunity for others. They begin to think, well, maybe, maybe I can do what Brother Richard's doing. Maybe I can do what Pastor Scott's doing. Maybe I can be a pastor, an elder one day. And he encourages them to live godly lives so that they can someday serve as an elder. So in that way, plural eldership takes the focus off the paid staff and puts it on the regular church member, encouraging everyone to consider a more committed capacity. Samuel Waldron notes that plural leadership allows the development of younger leaders within the church by eliminating the sense that there is room for only one leader and one ministry in the church. We've stated many times that Christ is the head of the church. We know that. We got that one down, I think. If you don't know anything else, we already knew that one, but you got that down. He's the chief shepherd. And those whom Christ calls to lead the church as pastors are merely under-shepherds. They shepherd the congregation under the authority and the direction of the Word and the Spirit of God. But when each church has only one pastor, one senior pastor, that distinction can become blurred. You'll hear things, you might have said things like, well, you know, we go to Pastor John's church. You heard that before? And what they mean by that statement is that they attend the church where Pastor John is the senior pastor. Maybe just a shortened way to say what church they go to. And yet that, that, that kind of language, I know you might say it's just semantics, but that kind of language can lead to a faulty view of pastoral ministry. Beloved, the church does not belong to any one pastor. It's really not his church. A multiplicity of pastors helps keep the focus on Christ as the head of the church. Again, Walden writes, a church led by a plurality of elders will have in its very system of leadership a constant reminder that the head of the church is not the pastor, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's summarize this. First of all, following God's design, I think we'll all agree, is always the best way for the church to operate. The New Testament churches consistently had a plurality of elders, and there are many advantages when we see that pattern upheld. One advantage is the biblical accountability the elders receive for one another. That kind of accountability, again, protects the most prominent elder, that senior pastor, from having too much authority and promotes godliness among the elders. Another advantage is the balance that's provided when one pastor is not responsible for leading the church. Instead, you've got this team of men with a variety of giftedness and perspectives that clearly are absent when only one man is leading. A third advantage is the sharing of burdens. Leading the church is often, almost always, too much 
for one person to handle. When you have a plurality of pastors, that weighty task of shepherding God's people can be accomplished with a greater degree of success. And finally, when a church has multiple elders, it offers a better picture of the New Testament church since it, it minimizes that distinction between cler clergy and laity and emphasizes that the work of the ministry is not just for a select few. Again, also helps keep the focus on Jesus Christ as the head of the church. So there are many benefits to a group of men a group of pastors leading the church. But I submit the best reason is because the Bible clearly reveals that New Testament churches had a multiplicity of pastors. Sometimes these leaders were called overseers or pastors slash shepherds. All three of those terms, elder, overseer, pastor, refer to the same office. We, I've taught you this before. They are used interchangeably in the New Testament were we to move in this direction as a church body, we would use the term pastor just for the sake of, of a lack of confusion and confusing us with, with the Church of Latter-day Saints. The overwhelming evidence in the New Testament is that every congregation was led by a group of elders and not by a single pastor. And just for the sake of clarity, while elders do have authority to lead the church, authority under Christ and should be allowed to lead. You hear me, congregation? Should be allowed to lead with such authority by the congregation under the Spirit and under the Word. Final authority rests with you. It rests with the church as a whole. We've taken the time in two services now to speak to the biblical support of a multiplicity of elders in the local church and to examine the roles and the benefits because church government is an important issue. And I realize that it's not an exhilarating topic for you. Perhaps it's even a bit tedious for you. But again, it's important for us to spend this time because the church is important. And how it is led is important. And by whom it is led is important. And whether or not the form of church government lines up with Scripture is important. And we're going to let this topic, don't you dare say amen. We're going to let this topic rest for now. Y'all weren't supposed to laugh that much. Has this been that bad? Come on now. A lot of scripture in there. We're going to let this topic rest for now, for the holidays. We're going to return to it after the first of the year, sometime in the month of January. And we're taking this time because I want you, church family, to be fully aware of the transition that I am suggesting and to not feel like you're being rushed, like anybody's trying to rush you to this transition. I want you to have the opportunity to pray. I want you to have the opportunity to study the Word. I want you to have the opportunity to talk among yourselves about this transition. And then in January, the plan is to readdress this issue of church governance, specifically the transitioning to a multiplicity of elders in several ways. Perhaps another message, perhaps not, based on what I heard a few seconds ago. But certainly with a forum on Sunday night, one of those Sunday nights, to allow for questions and discussion and a presentation 
of the necessary adjustments to the church bylaws that will come as a result of this decision if we go that way. But ultimately, beloved, the decision is yours. I firmly believe as your pastor, this is the direction we need to go for all the reasons that I've given to you in these two messages. But this transition will only be implemented by the will of the church. And I trust you. I trust you about this matter. I trust that you will pray. I trust that you will sincerely deliberate the matter. I trust that you will sincerely examine scriptures to see what they say on this topic of the multiplicity of elders. Would you pray with me? Father, we are blessed to be in your house today. And as always, to examine your word, we want to be faithful in that endeavor. Examine your word correctly and carefully, Lord. Especially on important topics such as how your church is governed. Pray, Lord, that you will guide the understanding and the thinking of each one of us, that it might be aligned fully with your will and your word. Father, I also want to pray in this moment for those who are dealing with decisions and difficulties. There are stresses and strains, financial, relational, that individuals within the sound of my voice are dealing with. They've not even shared, perhaps, with others what they're going through. Father, they're feeling the, the weight of the world upon their shoulders. They need the peace and the wisdom and the comfort that you and you alone can give them. And I pray today they will find that in this place. Father, I pray for those who are, who are searching for answers. They've searched in the world. They've searched in their own head and heart. Father, perhaps this week, your Spirit has spoken to them about the only way, the only truth, the only life that is your Son, Jesus Christ. And that today, they will yield to Him and place their faith in Him as their Lord and Savior. And I pray for those, Father, who are looking for a church home. They want to be a part of a church that's faithful to your word, that's faithful to be on mission, that's faithful in giving, that's faithful in prayer, that loves one another, truly loves one another, and truly enjoys fellowshipping with one another. That's a difficult process. We've all been there, Lord. It's tough to find that place, that church home that we're meant to be in. And I pray and I trust that you will guide those who are deliberating that decision in our midst today. You'll guide them in that process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.